0: Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam
1: Boatik. All right, well, welcome to this week's Think In. I'm Aaron Cameron. With me, of course, always, is Adam Boatik. Thanks to our Ref Club for sponsoring and hosting, and of course, part of the real estate forums. This week's guest, very excited about this interview or conversation we're about to have. A gentleman by the name of Matt Pickin who's the Managing Director and Head of Capital Markets Canada at JLL. (laughs) Matt, thanks for joining us.
2: Thanks, Aaron. Happy to be here.
1: So, I mean, we just jump right into it. We always like to start our conversation just kind of setting up some foundation for who you are and how you do end up as the Head of Capital Mm -hmm. Markets at JLL. What was your career path? How did you end up where you are today?
2: I mean, I don't want to bore the listeners at this early afternoon now, but I got into real estate a little bit accidentally. I was going down the path to get into law. I was certainly studying courses at Western that would have suggested that was the path I was going to take. And my dad and grandfather were in commercial real estate. They actually each had brokerage firms back in the, gosh, going back to the 60s up until the late 1980s. My dad actually ventured into Development and then the 90s hit, and we all know how that ended. So, I was a little reluctant to get into real estate, but at the time, having finished university with a bit of debt, this is something we're going to give a try. And I was pretty lucky. I got set up with some fantastic mentors working at Royal LePage Commercial. And to be clear, this is a slightly different company. This is not the same Royal LePage that are selling houses. This was a venerable force back then in the day. Biggest competitors were the investment banks and other big conventional brokerage shops. And I had some fantastic mentors, as I said, worked there for about five, six years as an analyst, doing underwriting, packaging, and then kind of slowly venturing into into the sales side. Left there in the mid-2000s, went to investment banking, and that was an interesting experience. I learned a ton over there, a whole new space that I'd never seen before, and took from there some great skills that helped me develop my career and then went over to Brookfield Financial in the late 2000s before joining JLL in 2015. And here we are today.
0: When speaking with your friends that did end up being lawyers, any regrets with commercial real estate? And bear in mind, this is of course a, a commercial real estate audience you're speaking to.
2: That's a good question. You can't regret anything, I don't think, in your life. I mean, real estate... It's funny. I was talking to a client's son today who's thinking about getting into commercial real estate. He just graduated. And I remember that time kind of looking like a deer in the headlights saying, what do you do? And it's the big unknown. And it's the most apprehensive time in anyone's career. So I'm always very quick to meet with any of these kids that are coming out because we were all there and we were lucky enough to meet with folks at that stage in our career. I was talking to him today about our industry. And it's funny. I think we're probably going to talk about mentorship and some other things a little bit later on. But I equate... Real estate, it's really a fraternal organization, whether you're in office, in industrial, you're in development, you're on the principal side, private equity, REIT, broker. There's a sense of care and empathy, I find. And certainly I don't quite know how it is in law and in insurance or these other sectors, but there's a sense of care. And I like that kind of fraternal family, if you will, even with the competition, you care about each other, you say hi to each other. And everybody knows each other. So I have no regrets. There's certainly times where I think, oh my gosh, maybe I picked the wrong industry. Like right now, we're as busy as we've ever been. Not going to maybe have much of a summer holiday, but in our world, you got to strike while the iron is hot.
0: I know the feeling at First National. We are definitely not overwhelmed, but running at full capacity right now would be a good way of putting it. So let's talk about that. You mentioned that you're super busy right now. The summer's going to be full of activities. You probably won't golf as much as you would have liked otherwise. But describe what you're doing now, what your day to day looks like, and what you're working on.
2: Without getting into specifics, I would say, I mean, and if you take a step back, I think it's necessary when you look at the linear kind of path to where we are today versus where we were about 14 months ago. I mean, 14 months ago, not that I want to directly touch upon COVID. I think we're kind of sick of talking about that ad nauseum. Back then, we didn't really know, we weren't prepared for this. We didn't really know exactly where we were going. And I can tell you, we were, certainly there was a lot of anxiety at our shop and we didn't know where the next deal would come from. Moreover, how would we market a deal? Was pricing going to be reset? There was nothing empirical to suggest that pricing had gone down or gone up. And certainly different asset classes at that time, 14 months ago, we thought had been more affected than others. But again, there was nothing empirical to suggest that something was illiquid or that it had been hit worse than others. There was a lot of discussion. But we dipped our toe in the market and we were able to successfully navigate some of the challenges put in front of us. And we ended up actually transacting quite a bit of product last year. This year, I would say it's categorically different. The, the sense of optimism today versus last year is remarkably different. At the beginning, I used to say, oh, things are less bad today than they were yesterday. I would go one step further. Things are looking good. You, know, you look at the case counts. You look at the openings. People are talking about getting back to work. So now we are certainly touching all the asset classes across Canada. Our firm, retail was a four-letter word a little bit before the pandemic, and certainly at the beginning of the pandemic it was now i can tell you my retail partners are as busy as ever multifamily has been a darling irrespective of the market in which the marketing product i would say the one asset class i was most concerned about maybe for selfish reasons because we spend a lot of time with it was office but again things are so much net better today than they were 14 months ago and tenants are talking about getting back they're laying out the framework for the reopening plans And we are a lot more aggressive with our leasing assumptions. And I think the prevailing view is that by the end of this year, or certainly, no question, this time next year, we'll be back to normal. So, yeah, to answer your question, we're touching all the asset classes. And I would say if we had more industrial, that would be fun because that would be the beds and sheds mantra. You've heard that many times. That's certainly at the top of investors' wish list right now. And that's just flying off the shelf.
1: We'll go around the horn, I think, and touch kind of all the major food groups, but you've kind of started with office, so let's go there. But before that, you mentioned a whole bunch of the community in the commercial real estate world. You forgot lenders, so don't forget about us lenders. We're also part of the fraternity that you mentioned. I had to get that in there. Office is, I think, probably the most interesting of the asset classes, but we'll start there. With this whole transition, I think we're all still sitting at home. I think most tenants have yet to bring their employees back to the office. I think most companies are still kind of wrestling with what does back to the office look like? What is the flexibility? Are we going to permit work from home occasionally, permanently? How much office space do we need? What does that create? Social distancing. Do we need to implement that into our long-term plans or are we going to go back to full normal? You know, There's all these fears of variants and that COVID's never going away. That, you know, there's just so many unknowns. And so, I mean, from your perspective, when you're looking at office transactions and just what's transpiring in that marketplace... How are your clients sort of wrestling with all of the uncertainties?
2: Let's not forget, we are in real estate. We have to be optimistic. If everyone took a negative outlook or view on office, I think mean, we'd have a tough time raising the flag and waving it on behalf of the commercial real estate industry. I think we have to be inherently optimistic. Heading into this pandemic, vacancy across, we tend to be a little bit centric on the MTV markets, Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, but let's not forget Ottawa and certainly Edmonton and Calgary have had a little bit of issues over the years, but I think depending on the client, certainly if you look at office, if we're isolating that in particular, I think it's important to look at who was buying office leading up to the pandemic, who was buying it now during the pandemic. And clearly there were some trends that were taking place kind of leading up into COVID, which was an increasing number of privates that were entering the scene. When I got in the business in the late nineties, privates were kind of in the one to $5 million range. And now private's are doing well north of 100 million. I think you're seeing this big big kind of paradigm shift where the traditional Canadian institutions that were kind of gulping up office product across Canada, didn't really matter whether it was suburban or urban, that's changed. That whole buying attitude has changed. But I think when you drill down into it and it's funny we've spent some time analyzing where the vacancy is, where it was and where it's going, whether it's, you know looking at suburban class A, class B, C, downtown class A Versus Class B and C. What's interesting on a proportionate relative basis is actually the older, lesser quality buildings downtown that have suffered the worst on a relative basis. Uh, class A continues to outperform, and Class A in the suburbs has actually done remarkably well. And there's maybe a variety of reasons for that. But as far as tenants returning back to the office, I mean, I talk to our leasing partners all the time. They've never been busier. Well, let me caveat: they haven't been this busy in the last 14 months. Whereas this time last year tenants who had upcoming expiries just said, time out, not in a position to even have a conversation about renewal or expansion. If anything, there was talk about contraction or subleasing. Now we're starting to see some net new expansion conversation that's taking place. So again, I think it's just way too early to write off office, regardless of whether companies want to institute flexible working, work from home. I hate the binary conversation that is either work from home or go back to the office. I think there's going to be Some compromise, and I think some employers are going to have to recognize that some employees will be nervous about going back to the office for a variety of reasons, and it's going to be very much fluid. I think for the next eight to twelve months.
0: Yeah, Matt, I do agree. I've said it a couple of times that this notion that it's either everything goes back to exactly the way it was, or we're going to live in this entirely new universe, really misses the massive, massive middle ground. But once we're past the hump of people being concerned about COVID, you know, we're all looking forward to this future where. Case counts get to as close to zero as they're going to get. At that point, do you see a cultural shift will have taken place? Do you see an increase in we work to accommodate more flexible hours? Like Obviously, real estate will adapt. But what do you see being the revolution in terms of a shift in office use, not the demise of office use?
2: Again, a great question. It's just too early to tell. I mean, we've heard talk about dedensification, which I find interesting. Where leading up to this, if you recall, certain employers, including I think the government in Ottawa, were talking about workplace 4.0, even, which was one employee per 100 square feet. I mean, we're just shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And then, of course, you saw the proliferation of flexible space with the WeWorks of the world. It's interesting. Are we going back to the perimeter offices where we're going to take on more office space? I don't know if I necessarily see that. I do see potentially, and we saw this leading up to the pandemic, which was the idea of reverse migration. And this has to do with demographics, has to do with population, has to do with affordability. You think about how expensive it is to live in the big cities, to actually own a house with a white pickup fence and a driveway, it's gotten crazy. I mean, the housing market, it's reached new highs almost every day. I'm reading something in the ROB that tells me that people can't afford to live in the city. So leading up to the pandemic, we started to see a little bit more the gap between downtown vacancy and suburban vacancy was shrinking. And my sense is with affordability, with millennials and Gen Zs who are starting to have families and want to have kids, I think you're going to start to see the hub and spoke model is going to take effect a little bit more. Again, it's not binary, it's not downtown or the suburbs, but the idea of going to a suburban locale where you can potentially drive up to your building or you don't have to go 37 floors crowded with 25 people in an elevator, there's green space outside, you can go for a run, you can bike. And then, of course, layered on top of that was the affordability part. I think you could potentially see a bit of a resurgence with suburban office. Again, not to suggest at all that downtown is dead. Absolutely not. I just think that the whole binary story is one that we're going to have to look beyond and think about a bit of compromise in this respect.
1: I'm glad you mentioned Hub and Spoke because that is where I was going to go next. So you kind of took the question away from me. So let me pivot a little bit. And this is kind of a transition from office to wherever we end up going next. But maybe just talk about the impact of transportation, what your perspective is, just how transportation is, changed. you know. We talk about fears of COVID and jamming into a subway doesn't seem appealing right now. Go trains, of course. There's probably an uptick of car use, which just means more congestion because we don't necessarily have the most efficient highways in Toronto, but I think it's prevalent across the country. So that hub-and-spoke model, does that impact other assets? I mean, what kind of conversations do you have with your clients about just what the future of transportation means? And does it change their investment thesis? Because it used to just be transportation-oriented. It's always transportation-oriented. Just get close to some sort of transport hub. But is that changed now? Or is it less important in your investment decisions?
2: When we're marketing anything in the 416 or proximate to transit, that's a huge selling point. I mean, consider the gateway markets of the world, whether London, New York, Munich, Paris, San Francisco. Tokyo, I mean, these are all markets that are characterized by the availability of transit. This is a massive amenity and you can't overlook that. So quite the contrary, I think that transit is still going to be key, whether you are commuting to a suburban location or a downtown location. I think it's huge. I think it's relevant when you start to consider maybe another asset class, which we haven't yet hit on, and that's industrial. Our industrial partners, obviously, we're seeing the proliferation, the massive demand for industrial, both from tenants and investors. And what's fascinating is that with industrial tenants, location is key, and they'd rather pay a higher rent to know that they are closer to wherever they need to be. I mean, we've seen rents gone from, the, I remember, for years and years. They were in the mid-five, $6 a foot, and now we're well into the teens. You could move potentially way outside the GTA and go to the Golden Horseshoe and pay a rent half that, and yet we continue to see positive absorption, lease and activity with some of these big industrial users within the traditional GTA node. So transportation, not public transportation, but just transportation access to the highways. I think being proximate to your clients is the all important factor, and they're willing to potentially forego the rent savings in order to have that proximity.
0: So what about the investors on the other sides of those transactions? You know, If you're working with a big institution, they want to gobble up a bunch of industrial is there a box you got to fit it in? Do you want to target those kinds of assets? I
2: mean, look, the industrial, without question, industrial is at the top of the list right now, and investors can't get enough of it. They're under allocated. The challenge is the pricing for secondary product, i.e. aged industrial has gotten so aggressive that you're starting to see groups are saying on a risk adjusted basis, does it make sense for me to pay this amount of money, which is arguably at or even above replacement cost? Or we buy the land, do we entitle it. We pay the development charges, which, by the way, could go higher. And fingers crossed, we will land the behemoth or multiple tenants and hit the pro forma rent and really hit the yield, which should technically be higher than the cap rate at which you're buying secondary product. And some investors just say, no, they don't have the stomach to go down that rabbit hole. And they'd rather buy something that's all buttoned up, regardless of whether it is second generation or not. And really, the investors for industrial, that is the one asset class I can say with confidence. It spans all and really it comprises everyone under the sun. You've got the REITs, you've got the pension funds, you've got the family office. We don't really see too much in the way of foreign investors in Canada right now, unless they have boots on the ground. But there's no shortage of buyers for industrial right now, regardless of the type. It's actually quite extraordinary. We've never seen anything like it.
1: Well, okay, let's go there, because I think that's an interesting conversation. I'm going to date, stamp. I think it's June 16th. For those watching live, of course, you know that. For those listening or watching this later, it's just so that you're aware of what we're looking at. There's so much liquidity in the market right now, right? Like it is probably unprecedented, at least in most of our careers. The amount of money chasing opportunities, industrial is probably the easiest place to point at. As you had mentioned, beds and sheds, apartments probably secondary. I think the industrial market is as frothy and as healthy as it could possibly get. Are investors willing to cut down on yields? Like where are prices going? Are we starting to see rent projections with ROIs of a 15, 20, 30 year? horizons, like how are people making the math work? And I mean, just for context, of course, interest rates are at all time lows. I mean, not just the base rate, like government of Canada is as low as it's been. I mean, almost as low as it's been historically and even spreads. I mean, interest rate spreads are as low as they've been almost historically, maybe save and except for the CMBS world, 2006, 2007, 2008. So interest rates don't get much lower. Cap rates seem to continue to compress just because of the capital that's kind of chasing opportunity. Like, do you see an end in sight? Like, what does that look like in your world?
2: So it's funny you say that. I remember I still use my dad's old 12C HP calculator. And for those of you old enough listening or watching, that's the calculator that does everything backwards. So you can't just say two plus two equals. It's a little bit more unique and challenging than that. And it's funny because it's harder for me to use a traditional calculator. The reason I mentioned this is because my dad used to joke that what caused the real estate recession in the 90s was the HP 12C because they would be running these kind of crazy IRR models. And a lot of it was based on what you were just saying, Aaron, which was rent projections. Well, I might be buying at a really low cap rate today, but if I'm forecasting 5% compounded rental growth over the next 10 years, yeah, I can easily hit a levered IRR of 12, 13%, even when interest rates were obviously substantially higher back then. I think today, the rent growth we've seen in industrial has been absolutely unprecedented. We've never seen anything like it. And I would say that with shrinking land inventory, land costs are going through the roof. And your point about lending costs, I mean, right now, it's not just spreads and bond yields, it's also creative structuring. We're seeing really unique financing out there, whether it's interest only, some floating debt, and it's allowing groups to kind of hit that IRR on paper. And for the most part, I think that there's no reason at this point to suggest that rents are going down. Could cap rates go lower? Yeah, they potentially could. The metric that I kind of grew up paying attention to in both office and industrial, but I kind of cut my teeth in the industrial market when I first got into real estate in the late 90s. It's really price per square foot and it's where the asset's at relative to its replacement costs. And that is the challenge, even as a broker advisor, when you're underwriting industrial, when construction costs remain so fluid, DCs, land value, steel, I mean, it just continues to rise up. So there's only so much that you can pass on to the tenants, but the tenants are seemingly able to pay the rents and they don't really have much in the way of option. If you're looking for a brand new distribution center within a traditional GTA market, 40 foot clear, lots of extra room on the site for storage and turning, you're going to pay whatever it is that the landlord is dictating because you need to be there. So I'm not trying to dodge the question. I don't see any reason why cap rates are necessarily going to go up or rents are going to go down. I think the industrial market is enjoying its day in the sun. And again, as I mentioned, Rates didn't move for literally from, it seemed like the early 2000s until about four years ago. Rental rates kind of stayed the same. So it's good to find a lot of that was because cap rates just kept compressing. But it's good to see that finally investors are able to make a little bit more yield and pass along these costs to their tenants.
1: Yeah, I remember underwriting deals when I first entered the business and looking at industrial deals across the country and why would Toronto, they're five and a half bucks per square foot, yet in Calgary, it's 12 and it just, it, there just seemed to be a disconnect and that's clearly changed. Let me make the comparison. Apartments, it's kind of easy to see how rents are connected to income, right? Like at some point, rents can't keep going to five, six, seven, eight bucks per square foot because at some point, you know, people just aren't making enough money on their income for employment to cover those rent costs. I mean, save except for immigration and foreign investment, et cetera, but that's not the whole market. On industrial, and this is kind of a complicated question, but I think it's interesting because there's got to be a ceiling or or at least a leveling off point with rents also, save and accept regardless of cap rates and interest rates and all that kind of stuff. Do your clients look at the ability for tenants to pay and what the industrial tenant generally looks like? And at some point, because I think there's a ratio out there, clearly I'm not an industrial expert, but there is a ratio out there about some percentage of revenue from a industrial tenant covers their lease costs, but there's got to be a threshold where they just no longer can afford it. In any, any sense, like how does that play into decision-making?
2: Right. I mean, in retail, you call it GROK analysis. And industrial, I'm not sure what the acronym is, I which one of my industrial partners was on this podcast. They'd be able to answer it. I think in a weird way, I'll try to address it. What you're starting to see more of are traditional tenants of industrial who have finally kind of cried uncle, and they're now looking to buy industrial properties because of their ability to finance it or because of the excessive rent they're paying, I think they probably do a long-term, they put it all together in a spreadsheet and maybe it's an NPV calculation, but they figure it actually makes sense to own the asset, especially if the value of the asset will continue to appreciate. You look at that versus paying rent and you know, you're seeing lease terms over 10 years in which the rent is increasing two and a half, three percent a year. And at some point, you have to take a step back and say, I think maybe it makes sense to own versus lease. And we are seeing more of the big name tenants that are certainly contemplating those scenarios.
1: Let's just talk about clear heights for a second, Matt, on industrial. And maybe I'll just leave this really general, but you know, we've been seeing a constant increase in clear heights, but there is a whole whack of tenants that just don't need 40, 50, 60, fit, whatever it is, right? 24, 32, whatever is totally sufficient. Are you seeing a leveling off in that? Are you seeing a split in the market where, Some of your clients are looking for the lower clear heights because that's the tenant base they're looking for. How does that play out just in your conversations along industrial?
2: So again, I wish one of my industrial partners was on this podcast that he or she could speak a little bit more pointedly to the question. My comment would be, if you take a step back and look back, you look at the GTA industrial market, it's depending on the stats, it's the third or fourth biggest in North America. And as much as we talk about the big box, you know, when I got the business, it was 28 foot clear, was very, very modern. And then we just kept going up, 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 up. And certainly the fulfillment centers, the higher the height, the better for racking purposes and whatnot. But you take a step back and you look at the base of industrial. It's like looking at the denominator effect. You've got the old manufacturing buildings that really started out in King West and Scarborough. Then they moved into South Etobicoke and Mississauga and Brampton. And we know how the story went. And they were low, clear height, but they were predominantly manufacturing buildings. And then you have a lot of these smaller multi-tenant buildings who, whether you call them flex or small bay, as you said, Aaron, you don't need the height. I mean, these are entrepreneurs who really need to have a little showroom, and they have a little warehouse in the back, and certainly the percentage can change, and hence the word flexible or flex. But there's a lot of that product that's kind of baked into the denominator in terms of the overall inventory. Nobody's building that product now, or certainly it's very few groups are, because the math just doesn't work. Given land cost, development charges, hard costs, soft costs, you're seeing rents that are well north of 20 bucks, And well, if tenant can go into a second generation building and pay way less than that, they'll do it. The challenge with these big boxes is there is no vacancy at all, hence why they will pay whatever the market will bear. But as far as changing tenant preferences or attitudes, like if you are a retailer and you require fulfillment center type of product, yeah, you're certainly looking for that massive clear height. And from my vantage point, and again, I'm not an industrial expert. I would suggest to you that these kind of preferences if you will are not changing not for now anyway.
0: So Matt, I do know that you are an expert in land though. I know I've seen your name in a lot of transactions and that you're very active in that space. So can you share with us how land, you know, specifically, you know the broker side of it, what was the arc of that during COVID? You know, for the income producing assets, of course everybody's pretty familiar with how that went down. There was obviously a hard stop on all transactions, but activity resumed pretty quickly. You know, it didn't take too long for people to realize that they wanted to get into real estate again, and they wanted cash flow, and that you know, there's not going to be rent strikes and, and the other things that we'd all feared. But land is a different proposition. And obviously, a lot of investors are loath to hold land in a prolonged down cycle. So what did happen with uh, activity around land, and who was the first people to poke their heads out of the holes? And what's it looking like now if you're taking an attractive piece to market?
2: And this is interesting because it dovetails back to the earlier conversation about transit and whether that is still going to be important. Our first mandate coming out of COVID was a parcel of land right on the subway line, on the Blue Subway line. And candidly speaking to our client, which is a big private equity investor, we were nervous. They were not nervous, they don't get nervous, but we were nervous because we didn't really know how to navigate these uncharted waters. Certainly meeting with clients face to face and walking them through the opportunity, which is something we like to do. We couldn't do that. We had to engage in these types of conversations over Zoom. And moreover, selling land and trying to prognosticate what Rents are going to look like, or if it's a condo, what condo value is going to look like. Has that market been affected? I think it was initially. We just had no visibility. So we dipped our toe in. We were, I would say, less bullish in terms of our pricing guidance to the market. And as we started to see a receptive audience, we started to push it up a little bit. And we ended up transacting. Our first transaction in the COVID world was a piece of land. And it was acquired by a very big household name. I think when you look at land, It's a different market today than it was back in the 90s where, and not to suggest that one-off privates can't buy land for development. They certainly can. But you look at some of the big powerhouses, most of them are the big family offices who have very strong balance sheets. They're vertically integrated. They do the development themselves. Some of these developers are backed by pension fund capital or they have big funds and they need inventory. And you think about land, it's that Mark Twain expression, buy land because God isn't making more of it. Well, If you can find a good parcel, whether it's on transit or it's in a strategic location proximate to other amenities, it's a finite resource. So I would say to you that the big developers, they need to have a constant pipeline. They need to be able to feed the machine, if you will. They have people on the payroll and they might look at sites in which the returns won't be as lucrative as some of the other ones. But again, they need to keep that machine going. It's all about critical mass. So certainly the big developers out there, we all know who they are. They are going to continue to look at land and certainly continue to chase, I think, land that is proximate to transit, whether it's traditional kind of the TTC in Toronto, which is our major transit line, or it's Metrolinx or Go Transit. But they want to be near where people live, and people live traditionally near transit. So I don't see the land market going away. I think the bigger question is, what's going to happen to residential rents? And during COVID, we have seen some residential rents, depending on the area, that have gone down certainly some of the luxury product. And I think that might have to do with people during COVID, whether they're renting condos or renting traditional purposeful rental, moving back home with their parents or moving in with their siblings, trying to save money, wanting to be near people as opposed to being isolated during this pandemic, which let's not kid ourselves, it's taking a hit on some people's mental health. So to the extent the rents go down or the perception is that condo values go down, something has to take a hit and that will be the land value. As of yet, we have not yet seen any deterioration in land
0: value. I just want to pull briefly on something that you mentioned there. You said that uh, so you know, small developers can buy land, but maybe the inverse of that is that not the way they used to. I don't know if I'm reading into what you're saying, but maybe go back you know, well before COVID. Obviously, your career spans a pretty decent amount of time. Is it tougher for smaller players to acquire any sort of land in the GTA? Are you seeing it with the table as much? Describe their experience for you know, groups that are not the big land banks.
2: I mean, you say my career span quite a few years, I think that's a nice way of saying I'm old, which I'm fine with. That's okay. You knew I was going to say that. No, it, look, I'm not going to reference a specific deal that we worked on, but we did work on a deal on Young Street that was hotly contested. I think it was one of the most competitive bidding processes I've ever seen. I believe we had close to like 40 or even 50 bids. It was tremendous. And it was all walks of life. And For that deal, we ultimately transacted to a private group with whom we didn't have that much visibility. We didn't know much about them. And for them to be competitive versus some of the more qualified groups who we know have deep pockets and the ability to close and strong balance sheets, you need to be a little bit more aggressive. You need to be able to potentially demonstrate that you've undertaken the due diligence and you know how to get the deal done. You're not gonna tie it up. Like I remember back in, you know, as you said, I've been doing this for a while. When I got in the business, we had asking prices. We didn't have bid dates. We didn't have second round bid situations. It was like, okay, here's the property. Here's the asking price. Typically, would be a little bit above the number at which the vendor would sell. And look, the first bid that came in, if you think it was a qualified group and they had a decent track record, you would try to transact with them. But back then, very rare would you see a situation in which the buyer would be firm. They would typically have a Minimum 30 days, if not longer. I remember having deals on contract for 90 days, and certainly as a broker, certainly back then in the early days, you're anxious. There's a little trepidation. Is this group going to do it? Are they going to be able to find the financing? Are they going to find something in their due diligence? Today, it's a lot more sophisticated. Groups can, at their fingertips, find information a lot easier than they could back then. But back to your question about the privates look, there are still some of the most prominent developers in Toronto, if not Canada, are private. So, just to be clear, I'm not picking on privates at all. I'm thinking about a group that might do one project every three or four years, I do think it's a little bit more competitive for them relative to some of the bigger boys and girls who are out there.
1: Matt, we've got about 10 or 15 minutes left and we are going to finish the conversation on something that I think is really important to you, which is sort of mentorship and giving back to sort of new generations joining our community. One last question though, I just, I find this kind of fascinating and it kind of, I think, wraps up the whole theme regardless of asset class. Now that you're picking up new mandates with the liquidity in the marketplace, heading out of COVID, all the optimism, you talked about the old days, the way it used to be. What are you seeing in the future? Like, are you finding now there's just even more people at the table, the bidding process just out of control? What are you anticipating? How are you basically setting expectations for your clients when they're bringing a property to market saying, this is what I think is going to happen?
2: That's a good question. It is about managing expectations and real estate as an asset class, it ebbs and flows. And sometimes you want to stay away from it. You think about 08, 09 when cap rates decompress. That's a word that we haven't heard in a while, but they did. They went up, gosh, 150, even 200 basis points. We haven't seen that now. Nothing empirical to suggest that we've seen decompression. I think maybe some of the underwriting metrics have changed, but as both you and Adam are in the lending business, you know that it's still quite attractive to borrow right now. So cap rates haven't been affected all that much. I would say to you that if you look at the profile of ownership and you go way back, not to give a history lesson, but Back in the mid-90s, it was the banks who were taking back the real estate because it was the privates or some of the larger private institutions, I guess, who held real estate and they blew up. And the banks, the lenders took them back and then they sold them for cents on the dollar. Then you had some of the sharks that bought them and then they sold them to a lot of the REITs. And then you had some of the more known entities in the market today who bought at more stable pricing. And for the most part, they've continued to own. They have called their portfolios. I think they've sold down in certain assets and certain asset classes, certain geographies. But fast forward to today, certainly, I would say Canadian institutions are a lot more global than they were back in the 80s, 90s, or even 2000s. I mean, there are some big, big Canadian names who are doing some fantastic things outside of Canada. It makes me proud as a Canadian. And I speak to my JLL brethren on a regular basis. And it's always, well, did you hear that this Petr fund or this institution from Canada is doing this or that? And Canadians, year in and year out, Canadian institutions are among the most active players in the world. So what does that mean in terms of, I mean, this is a conversation about Canadian transactions. Certainly, Canadian institutions are less active in their backyard today than they were five years or 10 years ago. That's a fact. What you are doing is you're seeing the Canadian institutions who are manufacturing product, they're, they're building industrial, the building office, the are building multifamily. You're seeing certainly select REITs are more active, again, dependent on asset class. But you've then seen the emergence of these privates, the family offices who want to own real estate. It's a hedge against inflation. It's cash flowing you can touch it, you can see it. And I think a lot of privates are anxious about the equity markets. I mean, we're seeing multiples we've never seen before. The TSX hit a big high, I think, for the biggest high over 20000 a couple of weeks ago. So real estate is where we are seeing a lot more capital going into it, but it's not like we're getting 50 bids per transaction. I wish that was the case, but we're not. Certainly, it depends on the situation. If it's Something that's under $20 million, you're going to see more bidding. Once you get above $100 million, it the universe thins out, and it's dependent on the asset class. But definitely changing buyer preferences is something that we have to monitor. As an advisor in real estate, we have to understand what are our clients looking at, where, and why. And when we go to pitch our clients to sell, they need to be fully understand and be, manage their expectations accordingly.
0: Aaron could tell you that I'm happy to talk about investments all day long. But there is one other aspect of your career I want to get in before we run out of time. And that's your involvement at NAOP. You did found the mentorship program there. So can you discuss your introduction to the industry, how difficult it was to get into it, how difficult it was to create a network, and why that would have led to you trying to facilitate people now not having the same bumpy
2: road? Well, again, when you look back at demographics, when I got in the business, it was 1999. Nobody was going into real estate. Like it was still four letter word caused the recession. Vacancy rates were well in the teens. Cap rates were north of ten. People were going into dot com. This is you know late nineties early 2000s. two thousand. So it was quite easy for me to get a job back then. I don't know if I'd be hired today, but I'll never forget my everola page commercial. I went to a NAP event. It was a breakfast event early in January. It was at the Albany Club, which you recall it's on King Street East, and it's a smaller venue back then. NAP wasn't nearly as big as what it is now, and the GTA is the I think it's the second or third biggest in North America. And it was interesting. It was like walking into a wedding reception. Everybody knew each other. They were shaking hands and laughing and giggling. I felt like I was at a bar, but it was eight in the morning. And I was this kid wet behind the ears, sitting there in my double-breasted suit. That was my dad's way too big and thinking, oh, my God, I felt like I was in grade nine in high school, not knowing anybody. And I went back to my office and talked to my manager at the time and He said, what did you think of that? Was that a fun event? And I said, yeah, no, it was great. Learned a lot. But how does everybody get to know each other? This is like unbelievable. It's a little daunting. And at the time he said, well, tell you what. And he literally did this. He had a Rolodex because that's what you had back then. And he pulled out four or five cards. He said, I'm going to introduce you over email because that was a big thing to three or four senior people in the industry. You should go see them. Go meet them for 30 minutes. Ask them about their career. And the next time you go to that NAAP event, you can see them and talk to them. And you know, three or four more people than you did yesterday. Well, yeah, that's great. Especially when you're that young, not making a lot of money. I had nothing to lose. I had no mandate, so it didn't matter. So I did that. I met with some people and it kind of snowballed from there. And then when I got involved in NAOP, developing leaders wasn't even a thing, but certainly I was a little bit young compared to some of the people on the board. And I thought, well, maybe there's an opportunity to introduce a form of networking. We called it the mentorship program, but it was networking. And that's what it still is where there's an opportunity for someone young in the industry, and they could be in university or they could be working for a developer or a pension fund broker, it doesn't matter. But if you look at the mentorship program today, I mean, certainly it's evolved, it's advanced, it's a lot better than what it was when we started. But the idea was you go in there and you go online, you see these faces and these people, you read their bios, and as soon as it opens up, you get to select four or five names. And the spirit of mentorship at NAOP back then, and the spirit of it today, and where I'm going with this, you'll see in a second, the spirit of it was it's network. It should be called a networking program, but it's called mentorship. And sometimes when I've met with some mentees, they come in and basically ask for a job. They say, like, I hate my boss. I don't know what to do. Can you give me some advice? And really, that's not, again, the spirit of the program. You're supposed to be meeting people. Again, it goes back to when I was at that first NAOP meeting, didn't know anybody. But hopefully, ideally, you go through the mentorship program three or four years, you meet with 10, 15 people spanning different sectors, lenders, developers, brokers, owners, And the next time you go to an event, whether it's NAOP or SILR, or it really doesn't matter, you or the real estate forum, you see that person. Hey, how are you? Nice to see you. Haven't talked to you since then. And that was the idea. And I'm proud of being able to be involved with that, but even more proud of where NAOP has taken it today.
1: I have two comments. I'm not sure which way I'm going to go with it. One, I participated in that mentorship program back when it was, it opens up at 8 a.m. and you got to go in and try to select the people that you want to meet. And it's always the most, I think, High profile individuals were already taken. I had a funny experience where I actually went in and I took the approach of I wasn't looking for a job. So I went in saying, I'm not here for a job. I'm just here to get to know you. And I won't mention the other individual, but he's like, oh, that's too bad because I'm actually using this as an opportunity to, to find new employees. So it goes both ways. But nevertheless, great program. And it's a challenge right now. And maybe this is a good line of questioning. How are you doing it with your current team working from home? There's no opportunity for networking. I mean, I guess you can pick up the phone, but you can't go into a room. I think some of the evolution from NAOP after you started the program was that sort of rookie and rock star sort of event, which I loved going to when I was sort of younger in the industry because there was a whole bunch of colleagues, people that were my age, but a whole bunch of potential mentors as well. And I got everybody in a room and it makes a very relaxed environment. You must have been hiring through COVID. You've got a team what are you doing or what are you thinking about to get them kind of to have that experience that they right now just can't get?
2: Yeah. I mean, candidly, when this first started in March of 2020, we were all kind of lost. Candidly, I was on vacation at the time I was in Florida. I came back and I think about four or five weeks into it, we were doing a zoom call. I didn't know what zoom was and still trying to figure it out at the time. And I was on a call with, I think it was a client or maybe it was the team. And I was starting to look more like Tom Hanks from Castaway, like the, the beard and the hair and It was tough to get motivated because you're working from home and you didn't have that separation between kind of church and state. It's like I'm at home, but I'm at work. And I think I actually worked harder during COVID, believe it or not, because you don't have those breaks and meeting with clients for coffees and whatnot. It was tough. It was very difficult. And fortunately, I was able to speak to my CEO and we came up with a plan that allowed me to come back to the office. And it was like a breath of fresh air. I came back in about June last year. The team came back in July of last year. And obviously, we have to respect. COVID protocol and a lot of masks, but we have been, we've been working as a unit and we've been very productive and collaborative. And I'm not just saying this because I'm in commercial real estate, but there is absolutely no comparison to workplace collaboration on Zoom or WebEx or Teams versus being in the office and just walking over to one of your colleagues saying, hey, what do you think about this versus setting up a Zoom call and, oh, hey, you're muted and it takes a lot longer. So we've been very fortunate. We've been working really, really hard. I would say what's interesting, we are actually looking to hire somebody right now, and I'm finding it to be a little bit more challenging. And I've heard that from some of our clients as well who are in the market trying to hire some junior or mid-level analysts. And I don't know, maybe there's just not that many, or maybe there's so much demand, or maybe people are just not interested in coming back to the office. It's a very strange dynamic, I think. Hopefully post-COVID, we can look back and try to analyze that. But overall, look, the attitude within our team has been very, very positive. And I view my team kind of like a family, and I miss them. And I don't know if they miss me, but I miss them. And it was nice to get back together again.
0: I have thought that as well. You know, at my team at First National, we hired a young guy straight out of university last year, and then again this year with the most recent grads. And I couldn't imagine trying to find your footing in you know, the new corporate world while dealing with the uh, remote aspect. And I don't know what the solution is. If you're trying to make connection to the industry, maybe it's just wait out COVID and then get out there twice as much as you would have otherwise, you know, through 2022. But either, either way, I do hope we see the Rookies and Rockstars event at some point, probably not this summer, but maybe next summer and I'll think of you and do a tip of the drink while I'm there. I want to thank the Real Estate Forums for organizing this event today. It was fantastic. Matt, we much appreciate your insight. Thank you. Welcome to Commercial Real Estate Podcast after show where Aaron and I just share our thoughts on the interview that just happened. Matt Pickin, good guy. I liked his vibe. I'll be totally honest. You know, comes across as relatable. I can see why he you know, does well at sales at a very high level. You know, he he was happy to share, be transparent, and be a little naked. Like, you know, he talked about how uncomfortable he was first breaking the industry. You know, that's that's relatable to, to all of us. You know, we can all. And we all had that moment when we first got in the industry and you go, oh, I don't know anybody. This is terrible. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's awkward, right? It, is, it, is, it just is. For those of you that are new to the industry first year and you're just starting to get out there and meet people, I mean, particularly now, whereas we're kind of approaching post-COVID, don't worry, we all, we've all been there. The best advice I can give, and I'm sure Matt would agree, is just be brave, walk up to somebody be like, hi, I'm so-and-so, nice to meet you. What do you do for a living? Because everybody's experienced that. And I'm always impressed. I mean, while you brought it up, but a total stranger, particularly somebody from a younger generation, just walks up and puts their hand out and says, hi, I'm so-and-so, nice to meet you, right? Like that's gutsy. It's hard, trust me. I wasn't very good at doing it. I rarely would do it, but it is something that you should be encouraged to do. If you do it to Adam or I, we'll just ignore you. But if you do it to Matt, (laughs) Matt, I'm sure would take the time to talk to you.
0: Yeah, it's it's funny. I mean, a lot of the big... You know, networking events, you can see those people that are just not plugged into the community yet. They kind of got their drink wrapped in a napkin, kind of standing there looking around, or they pull their phone out or whatever it is, and you feel for them, you know, because you've been there. Like I remember the point that really pinpointed it for me in terms of that social anxiety was very early on in my sales career at First National. Got on a plane, went to the Saskatchewan real estate forum, went to Regina and I was very, very green in the role at sales. And I get my hotel room and I, you know, put on my suit and go to the opening night reception. And I walk in the room and I, you know, I grab my my drink wrapped in a little napkin that I kind of turn around and realized one, I don't know anybody there. But two, just looking at the crowd, that's a much smaller market than Toronto, obviously. So everybody knows each other really, really, really well. And I don't know a single person. And I, you know, I just had the moment of like, oh, okay, all right. All right, let's, let's uh, let's you know, gut check. Here we go. All right, let's go talk to people. But it was, I remember that moment specifically It's kind of turning around and going, oh yeah, like I don't know anybody here at all.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we didn't tell Matt we were going to do this, but everybody that didn't watch the webinar, we recorded it at, at that live and you're listening to this kind of li- after the fact on the podcast. Go on your phone or your iPad or your phone, type in Matt Pitkin remember his face. He's a face that you'll remember that you've seen before. And if you see him, walk up to him and say, hey, I was told by Adam and Aaron to come up and introduce myself. (laughs) Hi, how are you? Okay, do that. Please do that. And he, to Adam's point, like he's just a genuine, genuine person and would really appreciate you going and shaking his hand. So there, if you're new to the industry, now you know one person, you're comfortable walking up to them.
0: And if you want a little more motivation to do so, at that Saskatchewan Real Estate Forum. I did go talk to 30 people, got on a plane back to Toronto, and then did two deals with somebody who did, uh, I did stay connected with. So it was fruitful in the endeavor.
1: So there is uh, you know, a little incentive. Yeah. You know, we're getting totally off topic here. And we're supposed to be talking about the interview with Matt. But, you know, one of the fun things to do with those events is business card collection competitions, right? I remember doing that with some of my colleagues when we were really kind of raw in the industry. I said, okay, well, whoever can get out of here after the hour or whatever with the most business cards wins, right? And you do it professionally. You're not just saying, hey, can I have your business card? And walk it away. <laughs> yeah. you got to introduce yourself and have a conversation. But it forces you to try to have as many conversations as possible. And then whoever has the most business cards gets drinks for free for that night. So there, there's, <laughs> another, there's another motivation for you.
0: I like this. We're incorporating career tips into the, uh, the show <laughs> Exactly. <now. laughs>
1: Which is one of Matt's passions. So he'll, be, he'll appreciate this. The <laughs> yeah. other,
0: yeah, it's come up frequently on the podcast and Matt falls in this this bucket for sure, is he mentioned that he got into real estate by accident. And that seems to be the common theme. I mean, Aaron and I have had the opportunity to ask nearly 200 people now, how did you get into real estate as part of uh, our podcast? And I don't know, 65, 70% of the time, it always starts off with, well, I originally planned on being a Fill in the blank, and that's what I went to school for. Or I started after university in this job, realized it wasn't for me. Or I just needed any job under the sun, and the first person that made an offer was real estate, and here I am, 30 years later. It's not generally that you know, I in grade 10 of high school, I realized that commercial real estate was the path for me, and I structured my university courses <laughs> around that. It it doesn't never no. see the story.
1: Well, I think use I think you said 65. percent You're right. It's probably randomly walked backwards into it. And then out of the other 35%, half is scions or their family was in it. And so they were just destined to be in it. And the other half was they saw somebody driving a really nice car, found out they were in commercial real estate. And so we're just chasing money, right? Like it's it's literally, those are the only three ways you get into commercial real estate. By total accident, because of your family, or because you're just money hungry.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I think my dad's got a story about seeing a guy with a nice car when he was at Western somebody came to speak and they were in real estate. So yeah, that's, <laughs> that's funny to say that. <laughs> and Matt was a perfect example, you know, his uh, lawyer was supposed to be his calling and then I think he landed ultimately where he was supposed to be,
1: so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we'll wrap there, but honestly, as I was go, like, I'm going to go back. If you go Google Matt, remember his face, and next time you see him, walk up and say, Adam and Aaron told me to come up and introduce myself and shake your hand. Please do that. All right,
0: everybody, send us an email if you do it. Let us know how it goes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely.
1: We'll have a follow up. I almost want to say there's incentives. Like, we'll we'll have a name shout out if you do it or we'll give you $10. I don't know.
0: Name shout out for sure. Name shout out for sure.
1: Adam will give you $10. I'm broke. All right, everybody. Bye, everybody. Thanks.
0: Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast.